I'm Christine. And I'm Alan. We'd like to thank you for tuning in to our discussion this week. Our hope is that we'll share some information that you will find helpful. So now we invite you to join us as we together listen listen for for the the word. word. Hi, everybody. Welcome to our podcast today. We are looking at Trinity Sunday. And the scripture for today is John 3, 1 through 17. Now, what is really interesting is we have already done a podcast on John 3, 1 through 17. So today we're going to look a little bit more specifically at Trinity, this concept of Trinity, how it developed, etc. And I'm just going to have Alan get us started really kind of jumping into Trinity in the scripture. Yeah, thanks, uh, Christy. Um, you know, um, it, it is kind of interesting that the that the lectionary does this to us, but sometimes that happens. Sometimes they they repeat a passage, and so I thought we'd just take a look at uh, how this passage relates to Trinity Sunday today, and and how the New Testament approaches Trinity in general. And I think it's important to note that, of course, obviously, I mean, people people will call attention to this. The word Trinity Mm -hmm. never occurs in the New Testament, but the building blocks of that theology, I would say, are woven into the very fabric of the New Testament from the start to finish. So, you know, is the New Testament Trinitarian? Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Uh, Does it have a fully developed theology of Trinity? Perhaps not, but uh, the, the language is, is right. fully Trinitarian from start to finish. Right. And I, I know we're going to address this more in our final, in our final piece, but you know, it's, it's definitely, as we enter this today, um, don't put your question on your side. We'll hit that at the end. Um, especially if you are like, well, I'm not really sure I'm a Trinitarian, but I buy into this because the church made me. We'll talk about that at the end, but begin this discussion today really being in that Trinity space so that mm-hmm. we can really look into this scripture and, and look at how it reflects portions of the Trinity, how that, how it works. I, I, I keep thinking of my theology class terms, economic Trinity. Mm-hmm. And I really think that's what we are going to see today. Which means, which means the Trinity is God manifests God's self in, in the work of salvation. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So if we look at John three seventeen from that perspective, we find that I, I, again, I think that the, 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 the language of Trinity, the building blocks of Trinity are, are, are woven into this very passage. So obviously the question Nicodemus brings to Jesus, it really is, who is Jesus? He's asking, he's really asking, who is Jesus? And he assumes that Jesus is um, uh, just a teacher come from God. But Jesus speaks of himself in ways that I think pushed Nicodemus' assumptions. He says, you know, for example, very truly I I tell you, we speak of what we know and testify to what we have seen, yet you do not receive our testimony in verse 11. And the basis for this claim that he makes is that no one has ascended into heaven except the one who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. So, you know, we have this, this very kind of exalted language about Jesus in, in, uh, in, in the passage. And so, you know, and, and then finally, you know, Jesus says that the Son of Man must be lifted up so that everyone who believes may have life May, may in him have eternal life. And again, this is very exalted mm-hmm. language about Jesus that, um, you know, we see that there, Jesus is not just a teacher come from God. He is something more than that. Well, you know, often I hear um, language of, well, Jesus is just another prophet, but this is different than a prophet. Mm-hmm. 
Um, yeah. So yeah. maybe explain a little bit more this the son of man. What what here in this language? Well, is, as is, we as we've seen as we've seen before, you know, we think of son of man based on uh, the Hebrew Bible. Bar Enosh, we think of it as a term for humanity and mortality and, and sort of the, 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 the fact that human beings are, are, are limited in comparison with God. Mm-hmm. But that's not, the, that's not the framework for Son of Man in the Gospels. In the Gospels, Jesus as the Son of Man has the authority to forgive sins. Mm-hmm. In the Gospels, Jesus has the authority uh, as the Son of Man uh, over the Sabbath. You know, mm-hmm. um, in the Gospels, um, Jesus comes as the Son of Man who will judge all people. And so, you know, we see Jesus acting as the Son of Man in ways that reflect God's authority. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so I think we see this here as well, because he, he says, you know, I'm speaking what I have seen, in other words, from God. And right. this is not, I'm not just, I'm not just another rabbi, you know. I keep thinking in terms of like, capital S son. And maybe that's a, 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 mm, a silly way yeah. to look at it, but, yeah. but the son of man in this context is indeed this particular person, this particular person with this yes, kind of authority. Yes. Well, and as we've said before, you know, the backdrop for this is not, is not the typical use of bar Enosh in the Hebrew Bible, but rather it's the passage in Daniel 7 where Daniel sees one like a son of man mm-hmm. who receives right. the, the kingdom that will never end yes. from the Ancient of Days. And this is a very, you know, again, a very exalted kind of yeah, figure. Yeah, yeah. I, I like to, uh, I mean, head off, I'd like to point this out a little bit because I think I think this confuses many people. This, it does. And, and so I, I... A lot of people really, see but, Son of Man as a, as a statement of Jesus' humanity and a statement of Jesus' humility. Right, right. And so I'm hopeful this is helpful for everybody um, and how Alan's tied it into um, this this passage from Daniel as well as it pointed out this, this kind of uniqueness of this title. Well, and even in John's Gospel, you know, uh, Jesus is the Son of Man who's come from the Father to carry out the Father's will, mm-hmm. right? He, he's not just doing his own thing. Right. Um, he, and, and he will be lifted it up, which as we have seen before, refers not only to his death, but also to his resurrection and his ascension mm-hmm. to the former glory he had with the Father. So, and, and the purpose of all of this lifting up is so that um, he might be able to convey to those who believe eternal life, mm-hmm. which is, of course, the gift of God. So exactly. again, you, you have Jesus doing the things that God only God can Only do. Only God can do. Right. Right. And right. so um, um, I, I think, I, again, we have some very exalted language about Jesus yeah, here. Yeah, absolutely. All right, let's dig into the passage a little bit. And, uh, we, you know, we head back to our friend at Nicodemus. So just just dive in for us. Yeah, well, and when we look further at the dialogue, obviously Nicodemus misunderstands the meaning of Jesus, what, what he's saying. And, of course, Jesus begins, you know, Jesus Nicodemus comes to him and says, we know that you're a teacher come from God. And Jesus says to him, no one can see the kingdom of God without being born from above, which, as we have saw, saw before in our podcast, this there's much here to misunderstand. But I think it's important to note again that Jesus' language, uh, genethe anothen, could be understood as born again or born from above, or that is born from God. Mm-hmm. And, and obviously Nicodemus misunderstands it as born again, and, and Jesus is meaning born from above or born from God. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so again, uh, while Jesus speaks of himself as having a central role in salvation by being lifted up, obviously salvation is always the work of God. The work of God. So we have God 
being involved right. in salvation here as well. So I have God and Jesus here, but that's not Trinity. So where's the Spirit? Okay, well, Jesus goes on. He brings in the work of the Spirit as well in the process. And so as Nicodemus is wrestling to grasp with the meaning of being born from above, Jesus says he's talking about being born of the Spirit. And, and he elaborates by saying the wind blows where it chooses and you hear the sound of it, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. So again, not only does Jesus play a central role in enabling people to be born from above, to have eternal life, mm-hmm. not only is the whole process of, of having eternal life seen as the gift of God, mm-hmm. but Jesus can also describe it as being born of the Spirit as well. And now I think this is the pattern you find in the New Testament. Mm-hmm. Father, Son and Spirit are all three integrally involved in the work of salvation. Yeah. So, okay. So tell us a little bit more. Well, and here's the thing. So if we only had um, the New Testament affirming that the Father, Son, and Spirit are all three integrally related, involved in the work of the salvation, that would not be Trinity. Because the other side of Trinity is an affirmation that there is only one God. Uh-huh. And, and right. at, you know, at, mm-hmm. the, at the same time that John's gospel can affirm that Father, Son, and Spirit are all three integrally involved in the work of salvation, it, it clearly affirms that eternal life means knowing the only true God mm-hmm. and Jesus Christ whom God had sent. That's in John 17, 3. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we, you find it elsewhere. Um, so so you, you have not only an emphasis on the idea that maybe that economic trinity, as you mentioned, that, mm-hmm. um, that Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are all three involved in the work of salvation. It's the work of all three at the same time. You also have this clear affirmation. Yeah. While they can affirm Father, Son and Holy Spirit, they can. They still say there is only one true God. I think you have to see the combination of both of those. And yet, this is still complex because we still want there to be some kind of this is the Trinity. <laughs> right. This is the Trinity: God, uh, God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit working together. And somehow we expect that that in order to be a doctrine, that it needs to be that clearly stated. Yeah. I mean, obviously, we have groups all over that are denying Trinity because it's not this kind of explicitness that they they think they need. I would say it is a mystery. It is a paradox. Yes. You know, okay. Fair the enough. The New Testament can affirm Father, Son, and Spirit are all three doing the things that only God does. And at the same time, the New Testament can affirm there is only one God. And they affirm both yeah. at the same time. And you see this as well in John's Gospel, because the purpose of Jesus' ministry, as well as the disciples following him, is to glorify God's name. So you see that, that, that they, you know, the New Testament doesn't back away at all from the Hebrew Bible's affirmation of only one right. true God. Yeah. It, it still affirms that very clearly. And I think that's where you see this language of Trinity woven into the New Testament, the very fabric of the New Testament mm-hmm. from the beginning, because you have this combination of affirming that Father, Son, and Spirit are all three integrally involved right. in the work of right. salvation, while at the same time you have a very unambiguous affirmation that there is only one true God. Now, this takes us a little off course, but if, you know, I, I keep thinking of, but if, if God is indeed three in one, that takes us back to like the ontological Trinity. That, that takes yes, us indeed. back to God being Trinity and God's very. And being. I think that's why, I think that's why in, in the course of theology, uh, the development of the theology of Trinity, they came up with these two terms, 
ontological trinity, which means God in God's essence, mm-hmm. uh, God in God's very being, mm-hmm. is triune, Father, mm-hmm. Son, and Holy Spirit, but also the economic trinity, God as God manifests God's self through the work of salvation, is 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 Father, Son, and Holy mm-hmm. Spirit. So mm-hmm. you, you and and so I think that's the reason why they came up with those ideas. Is that it's not just that God acts like three in right, one. Right, right. It is God, God, God is, is three in one. Is three mm-hmm. in one. There is a, there is something about that right. that is essential to God's very being. Sure. Let's, let's keep on through scripture. Um, yeah. Well, and I would just I, I would just point out that, that, you know, you find this same pattern that you have in John 3 uh, really throughout the New Testament. Um, mm-hmm. uh, the work of the Father, Son, and Spirit are all integrated. Right. And in many cases, you may have all three mentioned as the agents of salvation in the same passage as we have seen here in John 3. And yet, at the same time, you see that same pattern that there are clear affirmations that there's only one God. Mm -hmm. And and for me, you know, I like to start with the first document of the New Testament, which as as a New Testament historian, in my opinion, that's 1 Thessalonians, written about A.D. 50, 51, so about 20 years after Jesus. And in 1 Thessalonians, you find right from the start, Jesus is placed on the same level with God the Father in the greeting. Paul, Sylvanus, and Tiffany to, to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ. Grace to you and peace. So, I mean, you know, right from the start, you have, you have uh, I mean, the very first document right. in the New Testament canon, uh, you have this, this exalted view of Jesus. But if you read further in 1 Thessalonians, you find that Father, Son, and Holy mm-hmm. Spirit are all invoked in the work of the gospel that has taken place in their midst. Uh, Paul says that God had chosen them in verse 4. But Paul says that the gospel came to them not in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction in verse 5. And their response consisted of imitating us and the Lord and waiting, which is faith terminology in the Bible, waiting for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead. So I think this is a great example Mm -hmm. of how the New Testament weaves together the work of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in a kind of seamless pattern. Uh, and and I, I, the thing I want to, again, I want to call attention to the fact that this is only 20 years right. away from, from Jesus. Exactly. Right? And, and, and I think what we should also notice is there is no kind of effort to justify this language. There's exactly. no rationale given. Paul uses this language and assumes that it will be um, accepted by his readers. Right. So, I mean, to me... The historian of me says this is obviously reflection of this early, early church, the kind yeah. of language they would use, how they understood Jesus to be, which is consistent then with what we get in the Gospels later as we're, sure. as we're un- unveiling it. So, Well, and, and what typically happens is, you know, folks who may grudgingly accept the, that there is Trinitarian language in the New Testament will say, well, that was a later development. Yeah, well, I hear that, and yeah. I, I I disagree for these very reasons. Yeah. Clearly, this is part this of this is the, the very first document in the New Testament. You have you have these this Trinitarian language in it, and there's no effort to justify using it. Exactly. Now, obviously, we don't have you know go out and baptize in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We don't have that. It's not that kind of clarity. But what you have is you know Paul refers again to the work of salvation. Uh, referring to God, referring to the Spirit, mm-hmm. referring to Jesus, right. and all three are referred to together. 
Exactly. And, and, and so, and that's just from the very beginning. Exactly. So we see it again. We see other examples. Um, you've pointed out Corinthians here. Right. I mean, uh, you have another early example in 1 Corinthians, which is only about four or five years later, right. about A.D. 54, 55. And it, des- and it describes the way in which the Father, Son, and Spirit empower the community to carry out the work of the ministry in this way in chapter 12. I love this passage. I teach it to my confirmands. I hope you guys do. If, if you don't, you should. Now, there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are varieties of services, but the same Lord. There are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who activates all of them mm-hmm. in everyone. And, and this is the heading for Paul's discussion of spiritual gifts that empower the church at Corinth to carry out their ministry. And clearly, Spirit, Lord, and God are all working in and through the community to carry out the work of ministry. And yet, it is the same, mm-hmm. the same, the spirit, same spirit, the same Lord, the same God. So you have that uh, emphasis on unity and oneness. We're not talking about three different entities mm-hmm. here. We're talking about the same right. God acting in 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 spirit and in the Lord and in and in the Son and in the Father. And in fact, Carl Bart will say that this statement itself is the root of the doctrine of the Trinity mm. in the New Testament. Yeah, br- brilliant, and and um, I, I think that's the best way that we we see it working. I'll put it that way. Well, yeah. and and yeah, because you know when you look at when you look at things like Christology and Trinity in the New Testament, it does it, you know you don't really have a lot of ontological language right. in the New Testament. Right. It's it's all a functional language. Well, it's exactly. all about how yeah. Jesus how Jesus does things that God does, or it's about it's about how how. Uh, Father, Son, and Spirit are all right. involved in the work of salvation. So it's a very functional approach. Right. But right. I mean, that makes sense because it does make that sense. was what they were concerned with was the message of salvation. Exactly. Exactly. And, and, and yeah, yeah, yeah. Again, from the very beginning, this language of Father, Son, and Spirit all mm-hmm. being involved and yet being one in that in that work is, yeah. is, 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 is clear, I think. Well, I, you know, I was thinking as you were going through this, You've got this functional process, but then we do have these kind of, if you will, you know, this this end of end of Matthew where you have, you know, mm-hmm. go out and baptize in the name of Father, mm-hmm. Son, Holy Spirit. So you do have that formulation you actually do. there. You it's do. not as strong. You also have that in Corinthians. So it's not as clearly developed as right. what you find in the later church. Moving on, let's move yeah. on. Um, you talk about Ephesians. Yeah, well, and again, we have a similar affirmation in Ephesians 4, 4 through 6. Um, There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is above all and through all and in all. And again, in this setting, the theme is the unity of the church that is based on the unity that Father, Son, and Spirit share as they are all integrally related in the work of salvation. And, and, And so, you know, you have this pattern again. You have the threeness and you have the one And I don't want to get away without recognizing one of the strongest statements in Paul's letters about the oneness of God is in 1 Corinthians Mm -hmm. 8, chapter Mm -hmm. 4. You know, and he's there, he's talking about the question of eating food offered to idols. And he says, we know that no idol in the world really exists, and there is no God but one. Mm -hmm. 
And indeed, there may be many so-called gods in heaven on earth, and in fact, there are, but for us, there is one God, the Father, from whom all are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. And so, you know, mm-hmm. while, G- while Paul can use this language of, of, of Trinity, you know, a Father, Son, and Spirit, all involved in the work of salvation, he will come back and say, there is only one God. Right, right. But then he'll say, and there is only one Lord. Right. Well, <laughs> And I think, you know, and, and maybe I'm going too far outside of our discussion, but, you know, they are living in a time when you still have these polytheistic, very uh, traditions. You know, you have the mm-hmm. Romans um, and their polytheism. So, but I think sometimes this language comes in too as you're, as you're dealing with people in some of these different spaces. Yeah, that's true. And as we said before, I think people just have a really hard time wrapping their logical brains around how can God be three mm-hmm. and one at the same time. And, mm-hmm. and that is the heart of the mystery. You know, I took a class in, um, it was Christianity in, in the Middle Ages, I think, something like that. It was a, it was a graduate seminar. And uh, there was a, uh, one of the students in there was a Muslim student from Pakistan. And I just remembered the class. And, and we would often talk about Trinity because there's a lot of Trinitarian language in what we were reading. And he goes, it just doesn't make sense to me. It just doesn't. But he had read, we read some pieces on, I believe it was Thomas Aquinas. And he said, now those were the clearest for me, in trying to wrap my brain around the Trinity. Yeah, Thomas is very logical. Exactly. Yeah. But it's, so it was really an interesting thing because, again, it's too complex. Mm-hmm. And, and that's, that's, to me, part of the mystery. Um, well, and it is, and yet I think it's also as simple as saying, you know, the work of salvation is the work of the Father, Son, and Holy mm-hmm. Spirit. And what the Father does, the Son and the Spirit do. What the Son does, the Father and the Spirit do. What the Spirit does, the Father and the mm-hmm. Son do. Mm-hmm. And I love the language that Paul uses there in 1 Corinthians 12. The same Spirit, but varieties right. of gifts. I think the that's same very clear. Lord, but variety of activities. The same God, mm-hmm. but varieties of act- varieties of, of works. You know, and, 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 you know, trying to understand it, in a logical way, is very complicated. Affirming it is a little more simple just to say the work of salvation Mm -hmm. is the work of God, the Father, God, the Son, and God, the Holy Spirit from the very beginning, and yet it is the work of one God, Mm -hmm. the one true God. Mm -hmm. From start to finish, the New Testament writers had no, saw no contradiction in affirming both of those things. Good point. And as I said before, they really, you, you don't find you know, a, a justification. Paul has a whole chapter in first Corinthians where he justifies the faith in Jesus resurrection. Mm-hmm. You know, right. he has to, he has to yeah, really he argue That's for right. that. That's right. right. You don't find a chapter in Paul's letters True. where he has to argue for this. This is just really kind of assumed. And, and from the very beginning, as we saw in first Thessalonians, it right. seems that, that the church um, was comfortable with, with using both the language of threeness and the language and, of oneness. Well, you know what's interesting about this, too? You're talking about how this happened so early, 20 years from Jesus, yeah. right? People that had lived and experienced, maybe experienced the living Christ, maybe that explains part of it. I mean, oh, I, think, I so. think as we move ahead and we are further removed from that historical piece, we have trouble wrapping our brains around it. But if you lived it, you were present, and... You lived in that early church. I think that's a very a different kind of uh, space. Well, but and yet I think I would say that we can live that experience. Oh, I think so now, too. I agree know, because we can. Exp- you know, we 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 have a faith in the one true God, right? And yet we experience 
God's work all around us right. in creation. We experience, you know, the 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 a relationship with Christ through our faith, and we experience the work of the Spirit in our lives in the church. I and agree. So, but I think it's that opening your eyes, isn't it? I mean, that's, well, you do that's have to piece, realize right? that's what's going and on. I think yeah. part of yeah. what we fight against are those who are outside the church who haven't who haven't who haven't experienced again. The language of the New Testament reflects the experience of the church, I think. They experienced in Jesus one who did what only God could do. They experienced in the Spirit the ongoing presence of Jesus mm-hmm. in their lives. And, and, and all of this was the work of God. And so, you know, th- this was their experience. And I think we can have that same experience in our lives mm-hmm. today. And, and yet we still affirm the basic affirmation of the Bible that there is one true God. Right. And right. so, I mean, again, for us, I think it's a very, you know, for me, Trinitarian language is, is very functional in that way still. Yeah. I, I agree. I agree. Absolutely. Uh, and, and, and important. And, and I think I mentioned it one other podcast, you go to seminary today and it's Trinity worship, Trinity worship, Trinity. Um, so people are hearing the language, mm-hmm. but we'll talk more about that. All right. What else do you want to tell us, Alan? You know, I, I think, I think the only thing that I would add is, you know, some folks in the history of theology have tried to say that Trinity is really not a central doctrine of the, of, of the Christian faith. Mm. I disagree. I do too. Because, because to me, I think it is of crucial importance to be able to know that Jesus truly embodies, reveals to us who God is. Uh, I think it's important that we know that Jesus' death on the cross is, is not only an act sacrificial act of an especially you know brave mm-hmm. um, uh, individual but it is an act of the 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 one true God who is love uh, I think it's essential for us to be able to know that what the spirit is doing in our lives is a, in continuity with the work of Christ and it is the work of God in our lives and yeah, and, and, yeah. and Trinity gives us that confidence in, in all of those things absolutely and uh, to add to that, um, there's not a single one of our confessions that doesn't address Trinity in some way. Uh, to to put it, make it as a side note is uh, kind of kind of not defining who God is. Right. And I think that's a is I think that's exactly what you said. That's a problem. It, it's just too essential. It, it, I'm with T. F. Torrance, <laughs> one of the first doctrines. Yes. I would, I would use. Well, and and you know when you mention the confessions, I, I use the brief statement of faith also in my confirmation class because mm-hmm. I love the language. Yeah. There is very, it's very functional. Good. Yeah, it's, it's very, very functional. Mm-hmm. It's very biblical, and I it's it makes I think it makes Trinity a little more accessible. I to think us. so too. It's yeah. very good. Yeah. Yeah. Well, friends, um, we're going to talk a little bit about history after our break, and uh, it's kind of interesting to see uh, where some of the reformers head with this. All right. Thanks. thanks. Uh, 
Hi, friends. We're back, and uh, Christy is going to take us on a, uh, a trip down uh, Trinity Lane, and, <laughs> uh, and, and we're going to sort of see how the doctrine of Trinity developed in the church. So take it away, Christy. Sure, sure. Well, of course, we're, we're, we're going to be talking about Trinity Sunday. That's why we're doing this, which it actually becomes, um, I, I apologize, I didn't write down the date, but it actually doesn't become you know, kind of a celebration of church in the Middle Ages. But the doctrine of Trinity, um, of course, is what we're celebrating on Trinity Sunday. And um, as you know, as we talked, it, it doesn't really become um, solidified or codified until the Council of Nicaea, um, where, of course, we get um, the Nicene Creed, uh, which, which puts it in a clear language. Um, and what you see in the Reformation is really an effort I, to restore the ancient church. And I think people forget that. They, they tend to think of it as... Um, uh, reinventing, in fact, and, and, and I would still say there's, there's, there's Roman Catholic traditions to say, oh, well, they, they, they took it from something new, but it really was a restoration. And so what did they identify as the true church? And they absolutely, our magisterial reformers, Calvin and Luther and Melanchthon and, and even Bullinger, all these people affirmed the Trinity and they affirmed the, the, um, Nicene Creed and the Apostles' Creed that also um, contain the doctrine of Trinity. For them, it was not an issue. However, that doesn't mean, as you know, it wasn't an issue in the history of the church. And of course, I alluded to it earlier at the Council of Nicaea and putting down um, the Trinitarian language in the, the confession had a lot to do with challenging heresies right. um, that had emerged about the nature of Christ, or the um, and really, it, you know, our big joke in when I was with when I was um, in the academy was really most of the heresies have to do with the nature of Christ and mm -hmm. and and really tear apart the doctrine of Trinity. I think what's important with the Reformation is those same heresies reemerge, <laughs> right? So what's the nature of Christ and? Um, What's uh, is is Christ really God, or does Christ pretend to be God, or anyway, those reemerge in the Reformation. Well, and I would say, I mean, where people struggle with that today, you mm -hmm. see some of that same language even today. Absolutely, they come up today. Yeah, and it's our inability to understand Trinity. Um, this the things we talked about earlier. This idea: how can it be three and one? The, the the wanting to be simpler and and get rid of of these things we can't understand, um, and also to make sense of well, how can Jesus be both man and God? Mm -hmm. That's incomprehensible um, to to many folks. Um, so if if that's not the case, then then what is going on there? Well. Or how can God, who is Almighty, then have be all equal to somebody else? Again, how can God, who is Almighty, um, uh, suffer and die on the cross? Uh, that is, I mean, that's, that's the way huge. Moltmann puts the question. You know, that's yeah. that's that's the real question. How can God die on the cross? Exactly. <laughs> so these pieces then lead to these different heresies. To give you an idea of some of the ancient ones, of course, you all know the Arians, um, where where Jesus is simply less than God, and that we. We talked about that earlier um and the uh, the he is, Arian. he is similar to god but not the same exactly yeah. and and of course that that particular heresy in the in the um was huge in the in the middle ages um 
and spread quite widely. So that was really an effort to combat that version of Christianity. Um, and then I've got some other ones here just to point out. Um, the Samosatinians, um, where they, um, where Jesus was, was seemed to be a man, but then became God. So he, he began as man, but then he became God. It's like an adoption. Like adoptionism, mm-hmm. yeah. The Photians, and these are all named after their kind of one of their leaders, the founders, yeah. denied the incarnation of Christ. So it's another adoption kind of mm. thing. Mm. And then the Sabalians is a well in mind that the aspects of God are three modes, mm. um, no distinct, per, distinct persons. So there's the... Modalism, yeah. Uh, yeah, exactly. Well, and it seems to me the heresies either fall down on the side of God is one or God is three. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, that's, I think, a really fair way to, to, yeah. to look at it. And with respect to Jesus, I mean, I think the heresies either fall down on the side that Jesus is really man or Jesus is really God. Exactly. Exactly. So the reason I point these out is these are the same kinds of questions that re-emerged during the Reformation. And instead of giving them a new name, which... They occasionally do, but often they'll just go back and they'll uh, uh, attach them to the name of the ancient heresy, which is kind of an interesting thing. Oh, those folks, they've just jumped right back in. They're just Arians or they're just uh, Photians or whatever the case. In other words, they know their history and they know they know the problems that have, have happened before and they know the importance of Trinity and they know the importance of the faith um, uh, being Trinitarian. And, and in fact, these folks became part of those dangerous groups. And if anti-Trinitarians were, were folks that were um, very much um, attacked, if you will, during the Reformation period, mm-hmm. they were considered very dangerous because these positions undermined God and undermined the faith. Yeah. That's how they saw it. Yeah, I remember being in seminary and, you know, taking my Baptist history class and learning about how, how the, the, the reformers in Zurich, you know, drowned the Anabaptists. And yeah. I, I, can, I can see now why they did it. It was, wasn't just because they were rebaptizing; It was because they saw some of their, their theology as being a threat to the church. Yeah, absolutely. So what you see is that your main reformers all... Um, all affirm the doctrine of trinity and they affirm those ancient creeds and those creeds the nicene creed the apostles creed ends up in uh, um, affirmed in their own in their own creeds so then if you're a presbyterian you know we have our book of confessions which has that whole host of reformation era creeds it's got the scots confession it's got the second helvetic confession it's got the heidelberg confession it's got um it's got the West, Westminster um, cat, um, Confession as well. So it's got all of these different Reformation area pieces that all affirm the Trinity in some space. Well, and I think it's fascinating and, and interesting and to note that f- from the start, the catechisms that the Reformers wrote followed the Apostles' Creed. Yep. And they even, I mean, they even go out of their way to... to um, for example, from the Second Helvetic Confession, and I know most of you out there are going, "Oh yeah, I don't like to think about that one." That's the Swiss Confession, friends. That's that's. Remember, we're talking about all these Swiss reformers and these Swiss cantons, and this is one that they have agreed to together. They're part of our Reformed tradition. So these people I talk about all the time, like Calvin, um, and Bullinger, and Bootser, those are folks that are. Associated. In fact, this is written primarily by Bullinger, um, member who took over at.
set in Zurich after Zwingli died. And so he's, he's really that Zurich reformer, and he's, he's always in discussion with Calvin. So putting it into context there, but anyway, it says, in short, we receive the Apostles' Creed because it delivers to us the true faith. Mm. So that's just one of many of those. Also, Luther, the Augsburg Confession, mm-hmm. also are affirming um, the doctrine of Trinity and and these early ancient confessions. Um, and I mentioned these are what are considered the magisterial reformers. So these are when you get to the Peace of Augsburg, um, the identif- the agreement that look if you are if you were Lutheran or Roman Catholic, and then that will change and it will include the reformed tradition by the time you get to the end of the 30 years war, then you have an affirmation that those are also considered magisterial reformers and those are okay. Those Mm. are not a danger to society, but those people that went outside of it, your spiritualists, your Anabaptists, your, all your radicals that I love to talk, the Schwermer that we love to talk about. Um, they're considered dangerous as a whole. And, and you can be persecuted for it. Well, and perhaps, again, I don't mean to beat a dead horse on this, but I, perhaps that's the reason why they formed their catechisms the way they did around the Apostles' Creed, because they wanted to make sure that the foundation of the faith that they were teaching was, was Trinitarian. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So, um, some of, that does not mean that there weren't some very influential folks that came from that. So if you have friends that are Unitarian, indeed, some of the ideas of the Unitarian Church comes from this period. Um, so just to give you a couple names, uh, Ludwig Leitzer in 1529, and that's um, uh, he would argue that Christ is not equal to God, nor of the same essence of God. Um, he was one of the Anabaptist and a Trinitarian leaders. Um, and I, I guess this was in an effort to preserve the, the doctrine of one God. Yep, exactly, exactly. Yeah. Um, and, and for many of them, remember, with, with Luther, you get the real encouragement of individuals to read the Scripture. Mm-hmm. Well, when you are, that's where you get to, I think, the beginning of proof texting, because right. they're not understanding the breadth of the Scripture. They're right. just picking out, oh, well, this text and this text. Well, and many of these folks, you know, um, made a conscious decision to read the New Testament only. Absolutely. Not the Old Testament. And, and so, you know, they're functionally Marcionite in a sense. And, and mm-hmm. I think this also creates some of the problems. I agree. I agree. Another one who's very well known is Johannes Campanus, um, who died in 1574. Um, and he, his version of, of this was where the son is born through the father who is first and then that the Holy Spirit was not even a person of the Trinity. And, you know, I can understand that because you have some of this language, like the greeting to first Thessalonians, mm-hmm. you know, God, our father and our Lord and Savior and our Lord Jesus Christ. You have a lot of that language where mm-hmm. it's God and Jesus. Exactly. And I think they probably picked up on that. Exactly. And made, it, made, made too much of that. <laughs> And of course, our favorite, Michael Servetus, comes back. Remember, we uh, remember we've mentioned him before, and he, he he is probably one of the more influential ones who wrote on the errors of the Trinity. Oddly enough, condemned to death by the Roman Catholics in Italy, and if you recall, mm. ends up being put to death in Geneva, largely under the hand of of the Geneva magistrates. But Calvin's involved. I mean, this guy is a dangerous danger to everybody. Um, and one of his big, he was very very anti. Um, 
um, this tr- idea of Trinity, and he believed that it was uh, a kind of a polytheism. Um, and he actually had a whole big doctrine built around the idea that, that all the different references, even in the Hebrew scripture, um, proved that God, as, as we would reference him, is actually many different people. So as we would say, yes. Mm-hmm. So all the, the different titles in the Hebrew scripture, like I Yahweh see. and Elohim and all the different ones are... El Elyon and Exactly. And those, those are different gods. And really? Yes. So that was part of his big thing. Wow. Um, but he was he was smart. He was recognized in many different fields. Even though we might look at him as a radical, uh, he was known as for his work in um, medicine. Um, actually, did some work in um, uh, pulmonary um, movements, how how the body worked. Um, also, some recognized work in geography. So he was smart and he was influential and he was very. Um, worldly in terms of around Europe. So he, and he tended to get people behind him. So he just had lots of reasons people were scared of him. But I think it's interesting that both where the Roman, we've seen so many times where the Roman Catholics and the, mm-hmm. and the reformers are at odds. They all agreed this guy is a bit more dangerous than all of them. Well, I mean, <laughs> if you, if you unravel Trinity, you really unravel the Christian faith. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And we'll, I want to talk about that. You know, it, why not make it simple? Why, why push this aside? Why not just as one God? We'll just have Jesus be a really good man that we want to follow as example. And um, what's what's the spirit anyway? This. You know, I wanted to I wanted to mention that Calvin in this because um, Calvin was actually combated by um, a tritheism, which is where the God, Son, and Holy Spirit are all all divine, but did not exist coeternally. Mm. Um, this is kind of that modalism kind of things, this mm-hmm. uh, process again. Um, and then um, also Socinus, who's, who's, who's also one uh, problem for Calvin, argued that Christ was not God and was a man elevated to the status of divine. Um, yeah. And the Swiss are reacting to that. So when you get to your Hevetic confession, many of the things they are talking about in those creeds are really are really attacking and, and the Helvetic's interesting because you'll see they'll have a have a doctrine they'll identify and explain and then they'll actually go on and they'll condemn mm-hmm, sex specifically. Right. So I have that identified right. here, you know. So here I have um, the creeds of the four councils received, and so this particular space in there is saying, "Look, we are accepting um, Nicaea, Constantinople, Ephesus, and Chals- Chalcedon, and with the creed of Blessed of Athanasius." And all the similar symbols. These are correct. And then it says the sex. But in this way, we know that they are absolutely not right. Um, and so if you look at your second Helvetic Confession and you want to know what more about what they say about Trinity and, and actually the nature of Christ, there is a whole section on it in chapter 11. Um, and so Christ is the true God and it has this whole definition of, of how Christ Christ is God, and then it has a section afterwards, the sex. We therefore abhor the impious doctrine of Arius and the Arians against the Son of God, and especially the blasphemies of the Spaniard Michael Servetus and all his followers, <laughs> which Satan through them has, as it were, dragged up out of hell and has the most audaciously and impiously spread abroad in the world. Amen. <laughs> makes you makes you proud to be reformed Christian, doesn't it? <laughs> but again, it, well, I mean, we can almost laugh at this today is that we would never use right. this kind of language. Right. I do think you can see that there was a real fear 
um, that this was really dangerous well, and, to go and, on these and, spaces. And while I don't see, I don't perceive any Trinitarian language as being a threat to the church like this. Um, you know, as we talk later about some of the other groups, I will say, I, you know, again, I think to unravel Trinity is to unravel the Christian I faith. I think so as well. Yeah. I think so as well. And, um, and, and folks folks in the Unitarian Church and other places like that, they might not appreciate that language, but that's, I, I have to say that's that's the way I see it. I, I agree. So what so what happens to these, obviously there's a big effort to be um, anti-Trinitarian, and at least in... Um, in, in Switzerland, if you will, in these Swiss cantons, they ask everyone to sign a declaration of faith in Bern in 1558. Um, and those folks that were still anti-Trinitarian just simply left. Mm. And where did they go? They went to Eastern Europe. Mm. And so these anti-Trinitarian sects formed their own churches, if you will, in, in, in Poland um, in particular, and um, um, areas of Romania, um, and it's from there then that many of our Unitarian groups really began to take off. Mm-hmm. Um, they're able to worship more freely there, um, and therefore they begin to be able to organize and such. Um, now, interestingly enough, if you're familiar with Unitarians and you go, you know, you'll find some things in common. And, and, and it actually, in the Polish in particular, in, in, at this time, um, predestination, they believe, theory of justification, but they just kind of ignore um, Trinity. And to me, if you're really doing the, the appropriate kind of systematic theology, you're going to find that um, there's big holes when you do that. It, mm-hmm. doesn't, it doesn't work. So anyway, that's a little, a little background on, uh, on a Trinity from the Reformation. All right. Thanks, Christy. You're welcome. Hey everybody, we are back to just discuss a little bit about Trinity. And Alan, in this discussion today, alluded um, quite a lot to um, groups today that are are not Trinitarian, and that there's some problems with with that, and in terms of our faith. So I thought I'd just let him get started and, and talk about what what are the problems with with these groups. Well, you know, we've identified Unitarians, for example, as one of the main anti-Trinitarian groups in 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 the church. I don't know, or in 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 the in our culture, I don't know that they would identify themselves as necessarily anti-Trinitarian. I I realize that they, there's a lot in the Unitarian movement that's more about freedom of conscience and and that kind of thing than it is about. Um, being anti-Trinitarian. And so I think it's important for us to understand that from the outset. I agree. I agree. Um, but, you know, I've also been in services that were led by, by Unitarians. And, you know, it's really, it's really just kind of almost a motivational speech, mm-hmm. you know. Yeah, I, and, I agree. And frankly, you know, I've been in so-called Trinitarian worship services that were seeker-friendly, you know, you, that we, right. we, we've had that movement in the early 2000s and the ni- late 90s and the early 2000s. It's still kind of going on. Mm-hmm. And the theology that was espoused was was very shallow and, and right. almost, again, almost unravels the Christian right. faith. Right, for, for me, I think the New Testament affirms clearly from the outset, God is the creator. And that God created out of love. Um, and, and, and that love led to God coming 
being incarnate in Jesus to um, heal our brokenness the only way it could be mm-hmm. right. by taking it on himself. Right. And that, you know, this God of love who came in Jesus to heal us is still at work in all mm-hmm. of our lives mm-hmm. through the Spirit to to continue that work of redemption and to continue the work of of pro- proclamation as well mm-hmm. in the church. Now, the way I I'd phrase that, you know, might sound like it's almost modalistic, but I, you know, I'm 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 certainly not going there because again, I I, I think it's essential for us not only to have a robust theology of God as creator, redeemer, and sustainer, but I think it's important for us to understand the role of Jesus in the work of salvation, which is essential, and the work of the Spirit, which is essential. And, and in the New Testament makes that clear. You know, without Christ, there's no salvation. Without the Spirit, we don't experience salvation. You know, right, and so, right, right. So Father, Son, and Spirit are all three involved. Um. Part of this comes also from my from my just my my work in the New Testament, where especially regarding the incarnation, you know, uh, the importance of the incarnation is that um, we can be confident that God truly reveals God's self to us in Jesus, mm-hmm. and when we look at right, Jesus, right, right. we get a true image right. of who God is. Right, God is love. Right. Uh, I think we also, you know, we see. In, in Jesus, the, 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 the extent of God's love is that God is willing to give up his yes, life right, for us to right. take on our brokenness and right. heal it. I think we, we see as well um, 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 the, the fact that, you know, God has entered into our humanity in the incarnation so that we can know that God truly understands. Jesus truly understands our weaknesses and our brokenness, and and we don't have to feel like, well, I'm some dirty, wretched sinner, and, and I'm I'm you know God cannot look upon sin, so I am I am excluded from right, God's right, favor, right? Because because God entered this entered, sinful right, world right. in order to redeem it from within. Then you come to the doctrine of the Spirit in the New Testament, the theology of the Spirit in the New Testament. You know, nothing happens in the Christian life. Nothing right. happens in the church life without the, without spirit. the spirit. So I, I go back to that statement in, in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, you know. Mm-hmm. God is working in various ways, right. but it's the same spirit. You know, uh, God is working in various ways, but it's the same Lord, right. Jesus. Mm-hmm. God is working in various ways, but it is the right. same God the and same Father. God. Yeah, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and so um, you know, affirming that the Father, Son, and the Spirit are all integrally related mm-hmm. and all integrally involved in salvation, I think, is the heart of the Christian faith I because so it too. speaks to who God is. Right. It speaks to how we know God. It speaks to how we experience God. Right. And I you, agree. you have to have all of those. I agree, and I, I'm thinking about that. And of course, that is why we were so encouraged. Worship Trinity. Um, Whereas I do think, and I think we mentioned this before, I mean, we can obviously, at least with Unitarians, we know their, their theology is, is the not, is, is not, um, um, well, Unitarian, but what about, what about folks that are Christian that we might argue 
wow, they're really just worshiping Jesus. Oh, wow, they're mm-hmm. really just worshiping God. And is there is there a weakness to the doctrine as, as we see see them practicing? Well, I think the I think I do see that. I think there are people for whom, you know, they they are functionally Unitarians in that they worship God and their language is about God, or they worship Jesus and their language is about mm-hmm. Jesus. You really don't hear much worship of the Spirit, at least not outside of Pentecostal. I was going to say there's a few, <laughs> <laughs> but but in 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 the mainline churches, you know, I don't think you really hear much of you that. You have to remember, I was asked to speak in tongues, right? <laughs> I yes. understand. Yes, yes, I, yes. I, I politely. I have been I to a Pentecostal. <laughs> I have declined. been to a Pentecostal <laughs> revival myself, so I understand. I understand. But but you know, the, I think the thing we have to understand too about Unitarians, as my friend, the Unitarian pastor, explained it to me. Unitarians can be Christian, right? They can be Buddhist. They can be agnostic. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the the whole thing about Unitarianism is that they they don't put any stipulations whatsoever on your faith. You uh, know? Um, so, yeah, and and what's interesting, it, I um I was listening to a piece by Alistair McGrath coming up, and what's interesting, what I really liked, he said, yeah, the reality is though, God works in Trinity, even those people that aren't aware of it, and and his point was, there's this desire to simplify. Um, to try to say, well, let's just let's just simplify. It's too complex, but he's like, if when we simplify, then we lose a lot of oh, God's. Definitely. I mean, it, it's simplifying God and it's simplifying the majesty of God. And as he said, the awesomeness yes. of God. And and I thought that was interesting because how often I kept thinking of when I'm cooking and I try to simplify. Oh, this is yeah. a five ingredient, and it's never as good as the one that has right. all the ingredients. It takes a little effort extra to to make, extra effort to make. And so I'm thinking this, you know, the same way is why why do we want to dumb down God? Why do we want to deny Trinity? Um, you know, and I'm not even sure. I would say, for example, in my experience in the Presbyterian Church, I'm not even sure that I would say people want to dumb down God or want to deny Trinity. It's just, and I'm not even sure they're they're even as intentional as trying to simplify the Trinity, mm-hmm. as as McGrath would suggest. I think it's just a matter of they they don't get Trinity. They have a hard time wrapping their head around Trinity. Right. They haven't been taught how to wrap their head around right. Trinity. And, and so they use whatever language they're right, most comfortable right. with. Well, and if you listen to a lot of our popular uh, Christian music, a lot of it's Jesus music. It and is. so that Jesus language, mm-hmm. and I have to confess, I'm not always praying in Trinity. You know, I'm, I'm often addressing God. Or, I would know, agree. I would agree. It, it may be something I should consider is, you know, in, in, in the end of the prayer, you know. Um, well, and we've talked about this before, but that's why I do the thing I do with my sermon. I open with a prayer, a bidding prayer to the Spirit, and I close in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior, mm-hmm. and then I pray to the Eternal Father yeah. and the Creator yeah. of all the heavens and the earth. But if I'm leading like a prayer dedication, I pray, merciful, majestic God. Mm-hmm. You know, that's, I mean, I address God primarily. But then, you know, I do I do pray in the name of Jesus, and I, I do always conclude my benediction in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Yeah, exactly, yeah. exactly. And so I try, to, I try to incorporate as much of that in my worship. Personally, you know, in my personal devotion, it depends. So I, now that Lent is over, for, for you know, I can, I can share this because um, during Lent this year, um, 
I did a thing where um, instead of watching MASH while I ate my supper, I, 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 have, I have a miniature of the homeless Jesus statue, uh, and I, I would have it at the table, and it's still there, actually. I still have it at my table. I still do this. And I would read some of the Psalms. Mm. But I would, I would start by just really praying, Lord Jesus, be the host at this table. Mm, be mm-hmm. my companion and guide. Because that's why I was watching MASH during, during supper. I live alone. I didn't want to eat alone, right? Right, and, right. And so I, 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 I have been, you know, much more focused on, on, on sort of a, a Jesus devotion mm, in mm-hmm. that respect. And it's been very, um, a rich experience, I think. Mm-hmm. One, of the, one of the richest experiences I've had in my devotional life, mm-hmm. just, to, just to have that sort of icon to focus on and, and to, mm-hmm. you know, to think about, in, in light of all the things that we've developed, discovered, even in our, in our podcast, you know, Jesus calls us to be his friend. And I'm looking at this statue of the homeless Jesus, and I'm thinking, how am I going to be your friend? Mm-hmm. Yeah, good point. <laughs> and and so you know, I th- I think there's room for that. Definitely, um, I I just don't know that people are comfortable with that, and it, it just depends. I think. I think it depends, and I think, of course, I think you're right. A lot of the wor- a lot of the worship music tends to be Jesus oriented, right? Right, and they're they're function they're com- they're comfortable well, with that. You know, what's interesting though. I do have friends that would say, "Oh, well, don't listen to it." And I thought, you know, I think we have to start where we can start, and 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 some it's 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 always positive, it's always uplifting, mm-hmm. it's always has good words. It mm-hmm. always, you know, I don't always get that if I go to other stations, right. and and sometimes I just need beautiful words, mm-hmm. and so. I think you have to take it for what it is. It's right. saying it's not designed to be rich theology all the time. Right. It's although some of it, some you of know, it there is. have been some songs on on you know contemporary Christian songs Absolutely. that have been uh, just beautiful, not only in their music but also in their right. theology. Right. So there's something of, of everything there. Even and uh, Alistair McGrath would agree. In function, we still as Christians yeah. are functioning in Trinity. Well, and I I agree with what he said. You know, whether people are aware of it or not, God works in, in Trinity. Exactly, and that's so who God it, is. A, that's who God is, right? And you right? can't. I mean, you, you can't get around that. It's just more a matter of awareness, awareness, and, and helping mm-hmm. them to to really get comfortable with with what Trinity means. They don't, and I don't think that means that they have to be able to articulate an ontological Trinity or even understand what an ontological Trinity is. I think they can understand that Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are all three at work in 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 our lives, in our world today to, to create salvation and to, and to redeem the world, you know, and, and it's, it's that simple, you know, and yet this is not, the work of three gods. This is the work of the one true God. Exactly. And 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 that's that's why I like that's why I really like the brief statement of faith because I think it articulates that idea really well. Mm-hmm. I do too. So um, yeah, I, I, what I'm liking about this conversation, you know, and I think a lot of people forget about somehow. God, how God really works. I think, I think a lot of us do that. And we, we tend to step away, especially those of us that work in the church. But I think it's reminding us here that God is God and God is going to do God's work. Right. Um, and in God's way, in God's way. (laughs) And, um, and it's pretty exciting to me because it's pretty obvious that the scripture comes through with, 
with this Trinity and this is how God, who God is and how God yeah. works. And it's pretty awesome. Well, and you know, you alluded to this earlier, but one of the ways I think that, that people can maybe get a handle on this is through the image of a dance. Yes. Because, you know, I, I, and I love John of Damascus and his theology of perichoresis. Mm-hmm. Now, I don't love everything about John of Damascus, <laughs> but but the the idea of perichoresis, mm-hmm. which means basically, um, well, it's 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 been Latinized to circumincession, or the, the idea is the mutual indwelling of mm-hmm. the Father and the Son and the Spirit. So wherever the Father is, there the Son and the Spirit mm-hmm. are at work. Wherever the Son is, there the Father and the Spirit mm-hmm. are at work. Wherever the Spirit is, there the Father and the Son are at work. As I articulated earlier, that's that's the idea of perichoresis or mutual indwelling. And, and I think, I, I, you know, I don't know how many folks out there have, have had the opportunity to dance with a partner. But when you dance together with a partner, you have to move together. Mm-hmm. It's two people, but you're moving as one. Mm-hmm. And I, I love that analogy. So you've got Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in this eternal dance. And, and the dance, the, what holds them together, what binds them together, is not necessarily the music that they're dancing to. It's the love mm-hmm. that they mm-hmm. share with one another. And that's the theology that Moltmann articulates, at least. I don't know that, that John of Damascus articulated quite that, that point, but Moltmann takes that 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 idea of perichoresis and 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 uh, weds it with the idea of that it's the love that that the father and the son and the holy spirit share with one another that binds them together in this dance of Mm -hmm. of salvation really exactly And, and the whole point of salvation is that they open up the, the community of Trinity, the community of love in the Trinity to include us all mm-hmm. in the dance. Mm-hmm. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. It's pretty uh, awesome. And, yeah. and, and so I don't know. I don't know. I mean, I've used that in a sermon. I've used that in sermons. Mm-hmm. I don't know how effective it has been. I don't know how much it connects with people, but, but I, 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 to me, that's one of the greatest analogies uh, of, of trying to uh, be able to um, illustrate what it means that uh, we have, you know, this, this Trinitarian theology that is at the heart of our faith. I, I, you know, I, I really love that. Well, and it, it, this, when, when Alan said this, it reminded me of one of our newer hymns. This was written in 2000, um, and it's called The Play of the Godhead. And just listen to the words. The play of the Godhead, the Trinity's dance, embraces the earth in a sacred romance with God the creator and Christ the true son entwined with the spirit, a web daily spun, and spangles of mystery, the great three in one. Oh, that's beautiful. Isn't that nice? That is beautiful. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, yes, it's called the play of the Godhead. And if you have glory to God, it's uh, number nine. That's Mm -hmm. one I'm going to explore. That's nice. Yeah, yeah. Isn't that nice? That is nice. Well, that might be a good way for us to wrap up today, everybody. Um, And we will talk with you next week. Thanks, Christy. Thanks. That's our podcast for today. If you heard something that was helpful to you, please subscribe to our podcast and tell your friends about us. It's our hope and prayer that our time together might bear fruit in your ministry as you build up the body of Christ. We hope you'll tune in next week. And in the meantime, let's keep serving each other as we together listen listen for for the the word. word.